0: This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome.
1: Anywhere you look, forest health and watershed health are intimately connected. Inherently, vegetation provides many ecosystem services. For example, it intercepts precipitation and snow. Vegetation can slow the transport of water along surfaces and allow for more infiltration into soil and groundwater. It can stabilize soils and reduce erosion and debris flow risk. Vegetation can filter nutrients and contaminants. It can shade snow surfaces and slow snowmelt rates. So from almost every aspect of watershed processes, vegetation is a dominant control.
0: Today's episode is a production from our contributing host, Samara Rosen. Samara and her guest explore what happens in river valleys when massive forest fires burn hot and severe, torching the tree canopy and the understory vegetation, and then sometime after that fire, powerful rains wash over that burn scar, creating floods, erosion, and massive debris flows. Please welcome River Radius contributing host, Samara Rosen.
2: This episode comes to you from the resident sandbags that protect my own home and many other structures downstream of burn scars across the western United States. In this episode, we'll explore the downstream impacts of fires, specifically high severity fires. Forests play a major role in river health, including how the quality and quantity of water move downstream and how much of the surrounding landscape that water takes with it. When those forests burn, the impacts to rivers and downstream communities can be severe. Communities across the West are experiencing the impacts of fires, flooding, and debris flows. One community in particular is the community of Fort Collins. Fort Collins is located in northern Colorado and is home of the Poudre River, the only wild and scenic river in Colorado. In order to understand the downstream impacts of fires, we'll examine several recent fires in Fort Collins. We'll first develop a foundational understanding of fires and the assessment of fire severity. then we'll examine the roles that trees play in hydrology and how fires affect the ability of forests and soils to perform these hydrological functions. And lastly, we'll learn about the evolving work of several organizations investing in the Poudre River watershed through collaborative forest management practices. But first things first, let's get a feel for the Poudre River. Our first guest is Brian Maddox, author of the guidebook, A User's Guide to the Wild and Scenic Cachalapoudre. His decades long professional, recreational, and personal relationships with the pooter bring us into the complexities of living with and loving a landscape change through fires and flooding.
3: Ryan Maddox. Well, I actually live on the Pooter River. If people know the river, I live right at Bridges Takeout. And um, it, a lot of the reason I stay here is uh, the pooter. I boated a lot of miles. I don't even know it. That last count it was like 40,000 miles or something crazy like that. And uh, this river has a special personality. There's class two to hard class five, you know, so whatever you want to boat. It's been a place where through several large traumas in my life, it's probably realigned me, fixed me. A quick story is I lost my eye in an accident. And um, my doctor told me that I would never be able to paddle again. And I believed the doctor. And so I quit paddling for a season. And then next year, my friends got me back on the river, actually at midnight, a run I'd run a thousand times and I actually ran the river at dark. And what I learned was I didn't need my eyes. I didn't need either eyes. I could do it in the dark. I knew the river so well and I learned to listen to my body instead of my eye. And so when I'm running hard water, like I always have someone go first and I don't watch their line, I watch their body to see how their body's moving. So it taught me to embrace what I had instead of looking at it as a deficit. And I'm actually a better boater now than I was before. Little lessons like that, you know, the pooter has, you know, kept me whole and kept me solid for Decades now.
2: I was going to ask you what the pooter looked like, but I'm realizing a better question could be, what does the pooter feel like?
3: What does it feel like? The pooter feels well. First, it feels like a friend, and it feels like a place. You know that one of the things that we know through research is that a lot of our health issues physically are from a lack of contact with the physical world, and it's a place where, in that moment of flow, when you're not thinking about the rest of the world. My body and my mind can become centered again and I feel I feel whole again. So does it feel like? It feels like mm, feels like home, which is where I live. So I guess it works.
2: And you wrote a guidebook on the computer. Would you talk a little bit about what that book is, what your process was for writing it?
3: So that was another trauma. <laughs> That's when I'm in the cornerstone. My son was born with uh, multiple heart problems and um, was diagnosed to die. And so he went through multiple heart surgeries. He shouldn't have lived. He was in NICU for 41 days. And so again, back to the river, you know. So I took a year off to take care of my son, put him in a backpack, and we walked up and down the river. I just did research after research. I didn't want a normal guidebook that was just white water. I wanted everything. So we did the flora, the fauna, the history. Any river in Colorado, any river in the Rockies that runs north-south has a special characteristic because it's probably found a fault line. And so they have a different flavor and they have different rock.
2: What are some of the highlights? What's out there?
3: Yeah. Moose is kind of cool. You know, we have moose up here, you know, which is everyone's like, Oh, bears. Oh, lions. Oh, wolves. We're scared of those. I'm not scared of any of those, man. I'm scared of moose. Larimer County is supposed to have the highest um, percentage of mountain lions. The coolest thing, I think, are probably the golden eagles. They're just so prehistoric. We have bald eagles up here. We have ospreys. We have wild turkeys moving into the canyon again. The bighorn sheep have really benefited from the fires. The trees, you know, we have wild plum and we got choke cherries. We mostly have ponderosas and a few firs as you get up higher. You have the classic firs and, and spruce at the top, which is um, really conducive to gray jays and stellar jays and grouse up at the top.
2: You offered a perfect segue into talking about the fires. Would you just give a background on the High Park Fire and the Cameron Peak Fire?
3: Those are two. There's been about six or seven fires since I've been up there, but those are probably the two biggies. That was intense, the High Park Fire. But I do remember the date. It was June 9th because it was my wife and I's anniversary, and we were running the lower pooter with our kids. And we just had taken out at Picnic Rock, which is the lower takeout, and we saw a bloom of fire coming up over the ridge. It's a little early for a plume of uh, smoke, but not that abnormal these days. All of a sudden, we turned around, and it wasn't just a column of smoke. It was a plume. We're like, oh, that needs to be something to be watched out for. And then we ate a little bit more, and then we turned around, and the whole sky had turned dark, and there was actually embers coming. Then we had heard, because my wife's in the fire department. At that point, I wasn't. And so then we had heard the evacuation order in the canyon. And so then we were running around trying to get everybody out of the canyon because you know, the thing was marching right at us. And uh, it's crazy to watch the sky turn black and watch the sun disappear. And then, you know, that panic, that weird feeling of, um, yeah, you know, something that's bigger than you is coming to you, not knowing what it's going to do or what it's going to look like. My wife was uh, at command central because she's in the fire department. So they were moving all their Chinooks and everything out of there and watch it move from a local to a federal level. And, And it wasn't that big, but it came really close.
2: Are there other sensory experiences that you had being so close?
3: It's not unlike a a campfire, but much more intense. And then there's just a feel like the earth kind of got quiet. The vision was probably one of the biggest ones, just because you can actually start to see the glow before you can see the flames. And it's kind of like Mordor, you know, with Lord of the Rings.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by a new sponsor with the River Radius and a newer company in the river world, Wholesome. Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. You start by framing your trip with the number of people, the dates of the trip, and the dietary needs. You can bring your own recipes, or you can use one of the 1,000 plus river recipes from the best river outfitters. Wholesome instantaneously creates menus, shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you. This is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized. You can use a monthly or an annual subscription to serve one trip or several trips. This is an excellent tool for River Outfitters and can be tailored for the individual. Wholesome provides videos guiding you through the process of how to use their platform. River Radius listeners can join at 20% off. Use the promo code river Radius, all one word, that is River Radius. and use the web link in our show notes to get right to Wholesome. Hey folks, this is Sam. Right now I'm driving a 2023 Nissan Rogue up a river canyon. Here we go. We're going to do some passing. This car is really strong and smooth with its transmission. It feels very powerful, very safe and very steady, easy to drive, handles great. There's a small footprint in the lane and yet it really feels like a big car. It's got big windows. I was driving it yesterday with four big guys. It handled the load great. It handled the space of us really well. This is the kind of car you can put your boats on the roof. You can load the back hatch with lots of river gear. The other thing I've noticed about this car is that it has an incredible turning radius. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com.
2: You've just gotten a glimpse into the lived experience of the High Park Fire. To provide some background on the High Park Fire of 2012 and the Cameron Peak Fire of 2020 and the history of fire in the region itself, I've brought in two experts from the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute a science-based organization working to restore and enhance the resilience of forest ecosystems to wildfires in Colorado, the Southern Rocky Mountains, and the Intermountain West.
1: Hey, everyone. Uh, My name is Allie Ray. I work at the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute as a spatial analyst and watershed scientist. I got a PhD here at Colorado State University and studied post-fire watershed processes.
4: And I'm Camille stevens ruman I'm one of the assistant directors at the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute and an assistant professor here at Colorado State University. And I am a fire ecologist by training, so I am more on the vegetation side, but a lot of my work focuses on how ecosystems recover after fires and how we can facilitate that recovery. I have done many things in my career, including being a wildland firefighter. And now, do a lot of research side and post fire recovery side. We at CFRI as a whole are meant to be an institute that bridges managers and scientists, and how we as scientists can help fill those gaps in knowledge.
2: Let's talk about some of the recent fires that have impacted the pooter. What are their names? When were they? What are some of their impacts?
4: One of the recent fires that have impacted the Poudre River is the High Park Fire, which happened in 2012 and burned 91,000 acres. It was in the lower stretches of the river and actually came into Fort Collins. And then in 2020, the Cameron Peak Fire started in August and burned all the way until December, burned over 200,000 acres, and really burned almost the rest of the Poudre River watershed on the upper stretches and burned for almost two and a half, three months, but most of the fire behavior was in just a couple days of runs that were very large and very windy, and then were followed by snow, and then it got up and did it again.
2: Forest management has evolved over the decades, especially the understanding of prescribed burns. Describe some of the ways that
4: management perspectives are changing. When we start to think about our relationship to fire, the fact that we are such good suppressors of fire now, even though sometimes it may not feel like it, we do successfully put out 98% of all fires that start under our current land management system. And that is in direct contrast to how these landscapes were probably managed for millennia. So really, fire suppression is the exception, not the rule. In many ways, prescribed fire is a reckoning of that, that there are all these landscapes that are adapted to fire and need fire to really strive and be the most successful that they can be. There's this great quote that says, fire is a bad master, but a good servant. And that works perfectly when you think about the contrast between a wildfire and a prescribed fire, right? When a wildfire is burning, a firefighter on the ground is not going to be able to put that out very easily because it's the master. Right? It is controlling the conditions under which it's burning and how severe it's burning. Whereas when we do prescribed fires, we're the masters and fire can be our servants and do that good work that we need to help promote the health of these ecosystems and the ecosystem functions and services that we want out of them.
2: With that, how does climate change affect the severity of fires?
4: The impact of climate change on our forested systems, I think, are pretty complicated. You know, we can think about how they affect the fires themselves. The fires we've seen are getting larger in part because of climate change, but also because of past management practices. We can also think about some recent studies that have shown that fires have been increasing in severities where there's very little vegetation left. And then there's also a longer fire season, right? So as that snow melts earlier in the season, we are getting the potential to have fires for a longer period of time, which is part of what we experienced in 2020 here as we had these really late season fires. Historically, many of the places that burned would have been covered in snow by the time they were burning. Then there's also how these ecosystems are recovering after fires,
2: what are the conditions that best enable fires to benefit ecosystems?
4: Fires, especially low severity fires can really provide a lot of vegetation and, you know, upland ecosystem health, but also add to the quantity and improve the quality of that watershed and that stream system downstream from those fires. Really it all comes down to the scale at which we're talking about. You can have even a small high severity fire that ultimately might be beneficial for that larger system. But a large high severity fire is where we start to get concerned.
1: So this is Allie, often watershed response is predominantly negative in the short term. But if we get wildfires, particularly mixed severity wildfires, they can have really significant long term benefit to watershed health.
2: In terms of the High Park and Cameron Peak fires, how is the severity measured? What were the tools used?
4: So this is Camille. There's a couple different remote sensing tools that we use to look at the potential for what we call burn severity, but essentially the changes in vegetation and soils. And so those early maps are really focused on the soil health and less so about maybe how much the vegetation has changed, because sometimes those metrics are pretty different, right? I can have all the trees die, but the soils not be really damaged. And that has a very different impact potentially for the watershed and water quality and water quantity than if we have all the trees die and the soils be burned really severely. And then as we get longer, at least one year post-fire, we start looking at the changes in vegetation as a whole. And then we can do a lot of ground truthing and field-based methods as well. Um, And that's kind of what helps us make decisions on what management actions are used post-fire.
2: And so with the High Park fire and the Cameron Peak fire, what was found with the condition of soil health and vegetation?
4: It was a mixed severity fire. In both cases, there's large areas where, you know, it looks okay, and there's pretty low, low to moderate severity, but also some fairly large high severity patches. And again, those are the areas that we really are concerned about. And I think in both fires, it was somewhere between 30 and 50% of those fires burned at high severity.
2: Ali and Camille contextualize that the Poudre Watershed has an ongoing relationship with fire, and yet the combined impacts of historic land management and climate change complicate the mixed severity burns of the High Park and Cameron Peak fires. Returning now to Brian, we'll dive a little deeper into that human relationship with fire. Were you involved in fighting this fire?
3: Yes and no. I mean, my wife's not a firefighter. She works for the fire department. My son's a firefighter. We're firefighters in the canyon for um, the volunteer department in the Poudre Canyon. Some of my friends, they did a lot of the fighting. They did um, structure protection. They did fire mitigation, chainsawing. Some of our friends up in Poudre Park lost their houses. Amy was directly involved because she was involved with the logistics that were going on at PFA, like the coordination of um, the airdrops, the helicopters, the rescues. And so she was involved that way, but the actual fighting, high park, no.
2: And you mentioned that you knew people that lost their houses. Within the community, what was the emotional response? You
3: no, know, it's devastating, you know, to lose your house. You know, you're in those moments, even us, you make these decisions, you know, because you don't get a lot of forewarning. And all of a sudden, they give you these evacuation orders. And all of a sudden, you're making these choices around, what do I value? You know, what are you going to grab as you're walking out the door, you know? And, it always comes back to the same thing. It's family. The things that have financial value come second. I mean, they do need to be considered, but they're not first. When the Cameron Peak fire came, that was that was a much different fire I mean, because it lasted so long. We have an old Forest Service lease cabin that's at the top of the canyon. We get phone calls every day from these people going, your, your cabin's going to burn today. We had that place for 30 years. You know, our kids were raised in that thing and we have pictures of it. It got 10 feet from the cabin and I mean, 100 foot flames. Amy and I are just like every day like this roller coaster. I mean, it's my heart and soul. I mean, so many times and shitty times I go up there and, you know, put my life back together, you know, because it's that kind of place. And then down here, it made several runs. One of the runs was right at us and it was right around Labor Day. Me and another neighbor stayed because there's two elderly people who live in our neighborhood and they weren't going to leave because they live here their whole life. So we decided to stay just to make sure we would grab them if the fire came. So we were here while the fire ran.
2: With the Cameron Peak fire, you said that it was longer. And so rather than having an initial reaction, is there something about having a prolonged experience?
3: Oh, it was, it was horrible. I mean, because it kept going out almost, you know, because we had several events. We had some rain and we had some snow. So you kind of think that the fire's over and then we'd have another wind event and it would blow up and it would move miles in a day. But if that last snow had to come, I'm fairly to 100% convinced it would have either gone into Fort Collins or Loveland. There was nothing going to stop it. I mean, even now, you know, like my neighbors and I, we see somebody who has a campfire or we see somebody who's got an out-of-control fire. I mean, it's this total PTSD thing. You know, you just, you know, you want to go over and tell them, you know, hey, what are you doing? You know, do you have any idea what this canyon's been through? You just go from this adrenaline rush of, I got to get out of here, to this settled of, it's safe and we're good to be back in our houses, and you're not safe to be back in your house because you don't know when it's going to blow up. And so those memories come back and we're like, oh, there's a lot of rain in Colorado this year. The fire danger is going to be low. Well, people who think that haven't been here very long because in August, all this fuel is going to dry out again. And something like 80% of our fires in Colorado are man started. You know, people not tending a fire and they almost always start with grass fires. And so we're getting all this fuel again. So, yeah, this is great. And not. The canyon is on high alert already to kind of go... How do we mitigate? How do we get ready? We're doing a wildland refresher this weekend because we know it's coming.
2: Now that we have an understanding of the fires that impacted the Poudre River in Fort Collins, we're going to talk about how these fires affected the watershed. We'll explain some of the roles that trees perform in hydrology, how the Poudre Canyon itself contributed to some of the downstream impacts, and what some of those impacts look like downstream. We'll turn our attention back to Camille and Allie from the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute. I want to start out by asking if there's a correlation between fires and flooding. Where are some examples that you've seen that?
1: So this is Allie. There's a pretty significant body of research and observation supporting a correlation between fires, flooding, and debris flows. It's not a function of there's more precipitation after fire. It's that fire changes how a watershed receives and routes water and makes it more susceptible to flooding and debris flows. The best local example was 2013. There was pretty significant flooding after a series of wildfires in the Colorado Front Range. Um, And then actually in 2021, after these most recent round of fires, we saw pretty extensive um, debris flows.
4: This is a common theme that we see across the western U.S. You can think about the New Mexico fires that we experienced last year. The Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fires had a lot of flooding even immediately post-fire which is very common in the Southwest where monsoon seasons follow immediately after, after the fire season. In a lot of other places in the Western US, like think about Idaho and Washington and a lot of Colorado, we usually see that delayed by a year where that water dynamic and potential for flooding really comes in as the snow melts and then the subsequent rainy season.
2: When we have thriving forests, how do they contribute to riparian health? What are some of the functions that trees perform in hydrology?
1: So this is Allie. Inherently, vegetation provides many ecosystem services. For example, it intercepts precipitation and snow. Vegetation can slow the transport of water along surfaces and allow for more infiltration into soil and groundwater It can stabilize soils and reduce erosion and debris flow risk. Vegetation can filter nutrients and contaminants. It can shade snow surfaces and slow snowmelt rates. So from almost every aspect of watershed processes, vegetation is a dominant control. Anywhere you look, forest health and watershed health are intimately connected. Are there other factors that contribute to flooding and debris flows? High and moderate burn severity generally tend to be associated with the development of hydrophobic soils, which is basically a water repellent layer on top of the soil surface that prevents the infiltration of water into the soil profile. Um, So that's why you can have the same amount of precipitation in a pre and post fire scenario, but you're likely to see more of that actually reach the stream post fire because of that soil hydrophobicity. What about the
2: fires themselves contributed to the flooding and debris flows
1: after the High Park
2: and Cameron Peak fires?
1: After the High Park fire, which burned in 2012, uh, we saw a very large flood the subsequent year in 2013 during the summer monsoons. For the 2020 Cameron Peak fire, we've seen a significant amount of debris flow activity. So that'd be the mass movement of woody and rock debris. The most poignant example was the Black Hollow debris flow in 2021, and that was again triggered by a summer monsoonal storm. The Poudre Canyon itself is a very steep, confined watershed. Steeper slopes will be more susceptible to high runoff erosion and debris flow risk. Another part is we had contiguous large patches of high-severity fire And that's what makes like full watersheds more susceptible to the the flooding, debris flow and erosion risks.
4: Especially with the Cameron Peak fire, we had a lot of the headwaters of the watershed be burned at high severity. And that means that there was a lot of material, a lot of debris and water flowing downhill into that very confined space. If you had a high severity fire, maybe lower, or it was intermixed with lower severity fire, you might have seen some of that debris and some of that water be captured in those places that were less hydrophobic think about like a quilt right a patchwork of severities could be like the different patterns on a quilt right if you have all of it as one there's a potential for a lot more movement than if there's some other pieces to stop it
2: to ground our understanding of flash floods and debris flows we'll turn our attention back to brian for context, typically river runners gauge the flow of a river in CFS, or cubic feet per second. I looked to track down the CFS following rain events on the burn scars, and found inconsistent results. According to the city of Fort Collins, the Poudre River, which typically flows under 2,000 CFS that time of year, reached over 10,000 CFS at the canyon mouth in September of 2013. Other gauges indicate a flow of closer to six or 7,000 CFS, And just keep in mind that while CFS usually indicates a cubic foot of water, this isn't just water flowing past these gauges.
3: I remember driving up the canyon after the high park, and there was a couple of uh, drainages that had been burned. And then just this little trickle's coming down, and it's coming across the road, so you kind of go, oh, there's water coming down the drainage. And I didn't realize how hard it was raining, and I was in my little Subaru. And all of a sudden, the creek that was right next to me flashed, and it took my tires out from underneath me towards the river. I'm trying to get through this flash in my Subaru kind of picking me up and taking me towards the riverside. So I kind of accelerate and then I get past it. And I know there's drainages in front of me. So now I'm trapped between drainages. So I recognize it is starting to flash, but I can't go back because it's flashing behind me. I can't go forward because it's flashing in front of me, but that was pretty short lived. That whole drainage wasn't completely burned. So there is some things that would hold it. So it wasn't a complete flash. That's not true what happened up at uh, Black Hollow after the Cameron Peak fire. That was a very different flash.
2: And so what was the Cameron Peak fire aftermath?
3: I was upstream and Amy was downstream. My wife was downstream. And I was up at the cabin and a cell came over us. And uh, it looked like a pretty good cell. We probably got a half an inch or maybe an inch at the cabin. And then it just stalled on the ridge above um, Black Hollow. And I think they got, I've heard anywhere from two to four inches of rain in an hour. And so a huge amount of rain, and it was right on top of the burn scar. And so then it flashed, and I mean, it took everything. I mean, it looked like a bulldozer had come down. I mean, boulders that were the size of houses came down. And so she went up to look at um, a couple of the bridges and stand there because we knew people had been killed. And so she was watching as propane tanks were floating by and parts of houses, and the water turned to this black, oily mess. like It looked like crude oil flowing. Well, they found some of the bodies fairly quickly. And then we were tasked, because I'm a kayaker. I mean, it was months before they found the lost body. So then we were tasked with going through and probing eddies and looking for it's a weird thing to be on a river and know there's a body there somewhere, someone's loved ones, a human being, you know, who is connected and we know them and you're looking for them. That's an intense thing, you know. And you have to go and talk to people, you know, and they just break out into tears, you know, or they want to talk about this person who they know is dead, but they don't know where their body is.
2: I'm picturing houses floating down the river. I'm picturing people floating down the river. Does privilege affect who's affected or how those resources are distributed? Is that something that you've seen?
3: Well, after the High Park fire down in Fort Collins, because of the floods, there's a trailer park in the central part of town that sits right in the floodplain. And so when we had a big rain event, the water from the Hyde Park flood came down and hit the uh, trailer park and there were multiple people killed. Everybody lost their homes. And, you know, where do you put a trailer park? You put it in floodplains. The affordable housing is put into dangerous places. You, you don't see that, you know, in the wealthy neighborhoods. There's flood mitigation. There was no flood mitigation in that area. And so the firefighters were going in. It was a pretty horrific scene. That's where they can afford to be. I'm not sure if it's a direct causality, but it's an indirect causality around um, privilege in places where, you know, they don't have the resources, they don't have the infrastructure. And so it was a flash.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by the Denver area Nissan dealers. Right now I'm driving my Nissan Frontier long bed, four-door truck with a camper shell. We're on a 6% grade, climbing uphill. Three dudes in the truck, bed full of gear, pulling a trailer with three boats stacked, all the gear, and we are just climbing. This Frontier has a nine speed transmission, super smooth, uphill shifting, real steady climbing. Roads are slick, truck's holding great. It's just a really comfortable, safe, strong boating truck. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. Wholesome is today's sponsor and Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. I really enjoy having rad meals down by the river while traveling through river canyons, but I do not enjoy figuring out the meals before the trip. I get overwhelmed pretty quick with the recipes, the ingredients, the shopping, the not over shopping. Using Wholesome, you set the number of people the dates of your trip and the dietary needs you can bring your own recipes or you use one of the 1000 plus river recipes from the best outfitters wholesome instantaneously creates menus shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you this is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized river radius listeners can join at 20 percent off use the promo code river radius all one word that is river radius and use the web link on our show notes to get right to wholesome
2: Often when talking about fires or floods, we talk about the main events. But after a fire or a flood, the events can be ongoing, and downstream communities must learn to live with those new conditions. Camille and Allie help us understand what those can include.
4: All those communities that were within Cameron Peak burn scar, or just outside of it in some cases, first they have this fear of fire, right? There were some people in the Poudre Canyon that were evacuated for like 74 days. Then the trauma and the impact is not over. They go from being worried about fire to being worried about water.
1: Down at Black Hollow, there's a couple of homes that are still intact and they're completely encapsulated by these massive sandbags because the river has rerouted itself in such a way that is a direct threat to that structure. So they basically have these sand barricaded walls to help protect their home. And I'll also add that from a scientific standpoint, you have an increased risk of flooding, debris, flow, and erosion in the first three to five years post-fire generally. So it is a relatively short-term impact, but the impacts to people and the broader forest and watershed health are much, much longer, decades long. Did you see any
2: changes in water quality?
1: Yeah, so the major water quality responses are an increase in sediment yields and then an increase in nutrient concentrations, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus that get released from vegetation and then deposited to streams through nitrogen-rich ash and soil.
2: What are some of the ways that the rivers and downstream communities are impacted?
1: after both fires, we saw a pretty significant delivery of sediment to and through the main stem of the Poudre. And that is where the city of Fort Collins draws a lot of its drinking water. And the city actually had to turn off the Poudre River intake for periods of time when there was high sediment in the stream water. That is due to treatment constraints, but luckily Fort Collins is dual source, so we pull some water from the Poudre River main stem, but we also have some crossbound route transfer water that is stored in Horsetooth Reservoir, so the city was actually able to shut off our main stem intakes during those Blackwater events.
2: To further understand the ongoing impacts downstream and lived experience of a Blackwater event, we'll turn back to Brian.
3: It did a lot of damage. I mean, we're still dealing with it because every time it we get a big rain up there, the water changes, you know, it, like right now it's kind of a roily brown. We have some sediment in water, but most of it's from runoff. But when we get something that comes across a flash, it turns black. So I don't expect it to turn black until July and August when we get those thunderstorms because then they'll just sit over the burn scars and then they send this black, especially on those hillsides that have not stabilized yet.
2: I'm trying to wrap my head around what a black river looks like. Like I can picture, say, the sediment of the Colorado where, you know, it's like swirling and you can see through it a little bit, like a couple of inches. When you say the river's black, what does it look like?
3: You can't see anything through it. It's like oil. You can put your hand half an inch below the water and you can't see your hand. The craziest thing is the smell. I mean, like my dry suit just smells like fire. And you can hear it. Like on your boat, you hear this kind of like scratching you know, of the debris. And then you can taste it, you know, like when water goes in your face or in your mouth, you know, it tastes like charcoal. And then it's really hard to read. It's one thing when the river's clear. And then when the river turns brown, it's a different kind of run. But when it turns black, it's a whole different kind of run. It's hard for me to distinguish between pour overs and sleepers and horizon lines and all these things that you count on when you're running rivers. Normally, it looks different when it's jet black.
2: I know that the Pooder has a booming recreational community. Do you know if commercial outfitters were affected by the fires and the flooding?
3: Oh, yes, they were. <laughs> they're, most of them are good friends of mine, and they've had real difficulties, you know, because the road will close or a flash will come. So suddenly they're moving their vehicles, moving their rafts. When a flash comes, they close down the canyon. They already have clients who are already um, you know, have reservations to go up there. So suddenly there's that dynamic that's going on. Between the set of fires and the set of floods and COVID, oof, they've had a run. I'm trying
2: to imagine, like, as a commercial guide, taking clients out on a Black River. Do you know what that experience is like?
3: I do a talk for at least three of the five companies around the history of the pooter. And with that, we talk about the fires, what to say to clients. Because a lot of these people aren't from the West. And to really have conversations as a guide, because they're our first, probably most important conservation tool. And so guides if you're rafting in a river that's black talk to them about that you know what it's like and what's going on with the environment
2: our relationship with our changing environment is actively evolving thus our approach to resource management evolves along with us in our last segment of this episode we'll look at ways that we can manage forests as part of our river conservation efforts we'll learn more about the work that several organizations are doing to both recover from recent fires and floods As well as transform our relationship with fire in the future.
1: Collaboration has really been the key to effective response in 2020. The 2012 High Park fire hit really close to home, and there was a lot of collaboration that occurred out of that fire. And in fact, an entire new nonprofit was created out of that fire called the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed. And they are Key folks who connect stakeholders like water utilities, U.S. Forest Service, local place-based collaboratives. I don't think many people actually know how active water providers are within both forest and fire management, particularly in the Colorado Front Range, where most of our drinking water comes from forested watersheds. And many water utilities integrate proactive fuels mitigation treatments within kind of their annual scopes of work to actually get fuels mitigation treatments completed within their source area to reduce the risk of future wildfires to their water infrastructure. And I would also say that these collaborative groups have really spanned beyond the scope of how they probably historically defined their work uh, so, for example, a forestry-based conservation district is now doing stream restoration. And so they're spanning those, those disciplines of upland to riparian to stream and integrating all of those systems into their management tactics.
2: Throughout this interview process, many of our guests directed me to the nonprofit Trees, Water, and People because of the intentionality that they bring to the reforestation process. Trees Water and People is a nonprofit that helps communities protect, conserve and manage their natural resources on which their long-term well-being depends. I was lucky enough to connect with James Calabasa, their Indigenous Lands Program Director.
5: My name is James Calabasa. I come from the Santo Domingo Pueblo community in North Central New Mexico. I currently live in Northern Colorado in the town of Longmont and you know work with Colorado-based nonprofit, uh, Trees Water and People. Trees, Water, and People, you know, we've been around for 25 years in the Northern Colorado community. Our work specifically focuses on engaging and collaborating with Indigenous communities across the Americas on environmental, natural resources, and social environmental issues like elevating their voices in the presence of, you know, traditional ecological knowledge into our overall work of conservation.
2: Tell me a little bit about your role within Trees, Water, and People.
5: Specifically, my role... Is focused on engagement, relationship building, executing agreements um, with tribes and non-tribal partners and entities, but also overlooking, you know, our financial and operational stuff as a program. My day-to-day work, you know, goes deeper than that. You know, as a Native American and you know individual who grew up on the reservation of Santo Domingo Pueblo, I learned firsthand about the importance of stewardship, connection to land, you know, farming, wood hauling. Living life in a really strong, sovereign way through the intangible aspects of language, culture, food, you know, things that you can't really touch or see, but, you know, you learn and process, absorb. And being able now in my in our role with Trees, Water, and People and the Tri-Public Coalition to use that knowledge and um, teaching platforms to educate the next generation, specifically when it comes to these traditional knowledge systems.
2: Let's talk about why traditional indigenous values and inclusivity are so important.
5: You now historically, conservation has always excluded or undervalued traditional ecological knowledge or just indigenous knowledge and it pertains to land management, stewardship practices, ecological preservation, and even you know cultural preservation as well. And it's very important and vital to understand how like the tribes and indigenous peoples who are the first stewards of these lands were able to coexist with the land and being able to use the resources that the, you know, the landscape gave them, but replenish it in a sustainable way. So, you know, in these conversations today, it's important to really honor and respect what Indigenous peoples have when it comes to the connection to their land, how they use the land. Since time immemorial, or even you know, for the future, and tribes, you know, they've seen it, they've gone through it. You know, sometimes are the the front lines and most vulnerable to climate change, and so they bring a lot of great knowledge and a lot of great perspectives.
2: And just a minute ago, you used a term which I think we should define: traditional ecological knowledge. Could you define what that means and potentially some examples of what that looks like?
5: One of the biggest misconceptions that people think is that tribes are a monolithic culture, but each tribe has its own set of values and way of life and governance system. So I'm happy to share what traditional ecological knowledge kind of means or what it represents from my community, specifically of Santo Domingo Pueblo. So it's really, you know, how we as community members utilize and coexist with the land. But then when you're getting into the specifics, you know, my community we track the migration of our relatives, the animals, the birds, et cetera, to help us understand when is the right time to plant, you know, our traditional corn, our crops, really looking at the other, other living beings in the natural world of like how they also coexist with the land. So like they're starting to head south. So it's probably getting colder up north. So in the next coming weeks, we're probably going to expect some type of a frost. So that's just one way that, you know, my grandpa always taught us, and then we used to do as a tribe, and this predates my time, small scale fires. You know, it helped regenerate new vegetation, you know, that was used for grazing of like sheep, cattle, horses, for wildlife. So, you know, the use of fire in these ecosystems was a very important component to, to our community, especially in that pinyon juniper landscape, because, you know, that landscape itself has many uses for us for nuts and berries collections for grazing etc so that's where for my community traditional ecological knowledge really means how to use natural elements with each other to be able to conserve and protect the resources that our cultural life ways depend on when i say us it's not just us as humans you know it's wildlife it's you know the land the trees you know everything is a living being and that's why we pray to it It's intertwined with our language, with our songs, our ceremonies, dances, etc. You know, when we do this work on like, you know, the landscape, we're not just doing it for the science. We're not just doing it for trying to grow trees. We're trying to bring, you know, life back to the earth.
2: I'd love to dive into some of the work that you've done with post-fired stewardship, especially as it relates to the Poudre watershed and post-flood stewardship.
5: We work with six plus other nonprofits locally in Fort Collins, currently doing post-fire reforestation on private landowners, you know, who were impacted by the most recent fire, the 2020 Cameron Peak uh, fire. Uh, but we have been, you know, in direct conversations with a few individuals from the local Forest Service, Arapahoe Roosevelt uh, Forest, to really engage on this mass reforestation effort. But that also includes, you know, how do we engage the the Black Indigenous people of color communities back into, you know, these projects?
2: If the end goal is to conserve and protect resources for future generations, and that you formed these different coalitions working with different groups, well, you posed a question of how then do we make sure that the voices of Black and Indigenous people are included? So turning that back around to you, what does that process of inclusivity entail?
5: We, you know, create these fruitful relationships based on reciprocity, trust, and transparency. We acknowledge and respect them as sovereign nations or, you know, communities that have been displaced, oppressed, but really bring so much, you know, value and knowledge to conservation, trees, water, and people. Our role is really specifically as a convener and a catalyst. We bring, you know, different entities and organizations, tribes together to a common space. Let's talk about the needs, the priorities of every community. And where are the alignment that come into shape for, you know, these projects so that the decisions that are being made are going to be the best for every community, not just one community. Building those bridges between, you know, federal agencies to tribes and also to grassroots organizations, local agencies, et cetera. But it's not just in those conversations. You got to ensure that those individuals, people, communities... Are actively engaged all the way from the conceptualization of a project or an idea, all the way to the evaluation and, you know, everything in between, because that's really how you build those honest relationships and long term opportunities of collaboration.
2: Am I remembering correctly that you did some work with CPRW?
5: They've been more of the kind of the lead organization in this Northern Colorado, Cameron Peak, fire restoration, focusing on the private lands. So we, you know, we engage with them as the organization that has the experience of doing like tree planting projects across America.
2: And with this particular project, what does the restoration piece look like? What does the tree planting piece look like?
5: The way Trees Water People engages with tribes is that we always ensure that the tribe decides how these projects are going to move forward, like what prescription, what trees are going to be planted, amount, uh, acreage size, etc. We are just, you know, more of like, here's some recommendations, but then we ultimately leave it to the tribe to make those decisions, you know, really respecting sovereignty.
2: A lot of science is around like monitoring and quantifying.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: When you think about the impact of your work, how do you know when the landscape and people are benefiting from what you do? Well,
5: you start planting trees, you start to see, you know, soil stabilizing, and you're starting to see wildlife come back to them. That's an indicator of success. Again, just another story that, you know, I've been, you know, privileged to hear from our tribal partners and, you know, leaders and elders on like how they define success. It's not always about the numbers. It's about like how everyone who use these ecosystems are able to come back and utilize them.
2: I want to ask if there's anything else you want to make sure that we cover in this conversation.
5: One thing I, I wanted to just touch base on is fire can be used for good. That's something I learned so much from our tribal and, you know, all of our community partners across America's, You know, if used properly, it could really rewrite that narrative of what fire suppression has put forth in our society. We can't just necessarily remove fire from the whole ecosystem. Because once we remove fire, you know, it creates this imbalance in the ecosystem. It creates those super dense forests. Then it leads to catastrophic fires when a fire does come through this landscape. So starting to listen to our tribal and indigenous community members, stakeholders, partners, like, and what they bring to, you know, these projects.
2: We were actually able to talk with CPRW, also known as the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed. A nonprofit devoting to improving and maintaining the ecological health of the Poudre River watershed through community collaboration. At the time of recording, Shayna Jones worked for the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed. At the time of publication, she works for the National Forest Foundation. I'll turn it over to Shayna Jones and Megan Mayola Heath to introduce themselves, CPRW, and their process of inclusivity in forest management.
6: Hi, everyone. I'm Shayna Jones. I am the post fire program manager for CPRW.
7: Hello, I'm Megan, and I am the marketing manager here at the Coalition for the River Watershed.
2: And CPRW has a really interesting history and scope of work. Would you tell us a little more about it?
7: CPRW started actually after the High Park fires of 2012, called the High Park Restoration Coalition. After the high Park, we experienced flooding across the Front Range, which affected the Poudre Watershed. So in 2013, that kind of informal collaborative turned into a 501c3 nonprofit called the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed. It was, you know, pretty apparent that we needed a watershed group that could work throughout the entire watershed.
6: Shana here. Our forest and river work span both pre-fire mitigation and forest restoration treatments as well as pre-flood work for you know, mitigation and restoration of the river. Um, and we work, uh, like Megan said, across the whole watershed.
2: You've already mentioned a couple of stakeholders, but are there others?
7: The county, um, local governments, the state. We work with federal government, a lot of work with U.S. Forest Service. Other local nonprofits, private businesses, and private landowners are really critical to the work that we do. And then also looking at how we can work with local communities to gain more acceptance for treatments like prescribed fire. So that building that social license, because, you know, wildfire flooding knows no boundaries. Our post fire planning considers quite a few different
6: science based models. We were looking at things like what is the soil burn severity, probability of debris flow initiation, the potential for hill slope erosion, where our road system is, that can often contribute to excess sediment and flows as well. And so I think the end goal with the post fire um, planning is can we sort of strategically and comprehensively look at those priority areas and come up with a plan through different restorative projects to help mitigate some of the impacts that we foresee coming to those high hazard areas.
2: What are some of the restoration projects that you're currently working on in regards to the Poudre River and the Cameron Peak fire and the High Park fire?
6: What we're trying to do is really layer in different types of projects. Um, So we tend to think of our post-fire program in sort of three buckets the first was focused on aerial mulching, so essentially spreading wood mulch from helicopters to target hill slope erosion on high priority areas. This helps treat inaccessible areas. The idea is to help try and keep the soil on the hill slope rather than coming into the stream system and to help create conditions that would support vegetation reestablishing. The second component is more restoration targeted at those you know, same priority areas, but coming at it from a different angle. So this might be more gully or in-stream restoration type projects. You might see like um, treatments kind of protecting a house or trying to deal with um, roads and drainage and making sure people have access in and out of places. Some of the projects CPRW has focused on have been more protecting water quality from excess sediment and nutrients. We've focused on projects that basically use native materials on site, trees, rocks, uh, establishing plants. And what we're trying to do is really create speed bumps to slow down water and promote sediment deposition to help stabilize stream areas and promote vegetative recovery and stabilization. And I guess I'll just mention, we also have some of these projects that folks might see out in the watershed that... They're intended to mimic structures that beavers build, um, which are great for slowing water and sediments and helping riparian and aquatic habitat recover. They've shown to be good fire breaks. So these are areas that can be enhanced and help slow down water and slow down sediments. But I guess I'll just say that they're not boatable. You can't boat through these structures. So if you are a boater, you would want to avoid that area, you know, portage around or put in below some of those structures. So, yeah, so that's that kind of second category of gully or in-stream restoration. And then I would say that the third component of the post-fire restoration is reforestation. So they are, you know, really targeting moderate to severe burn areas, areas that burned in both the High Park fire and the Cameron Peak fire that likely don't have much of a seed source. And so we're trying to really do this in a strategic way with partners, of course, and then um, we've been using a climate model to try and assess where it's best to to plant, given changing climatic conditions and projections there, so it gives those trees the best chance for survival and success.
2: It's been a few years since the Cameron Peak Fire and High Park Fire. Turning back to Brian, let's talk about what the river looks like today.
3: Well, the Poudre is a pretty channelized river, so the actual um, geography of the river hasn't changed much. Probably the biggest thing is snags. Like we usually don't have snags. The way ponderosas burn, which we have a lot of ponderosas along the repairing corridor, is they burn from the inside out. And so you get these widow makers, these standing trees that are actually hollowed out. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. And so these trees will stand for a long period of time until we have a wind event. And then they get pushed over. And some of them will land in the river with a root ball, which is also kind of strange. And so they create snags. And we didn't used to run into those. Now we're running into more of those. If people are running the pooter, it's a great place to go through the pooter rock report to kind of see the status of the river and what there are in there for hazards.
2: So I'm trying to picture in my head kind of a holistic
3: update. The sediment has been incredibly fertile. Like the insect hatches I've seen are nothing like I've seen on my 40 years on the river. The fish I'm catching now are healthier. So we're seeing an upswing, you know, which is great because you see the flash and it just breaks your heart. And you see these fish die and you see these people who are out of their houses. And then all of a sudden you see the aftermath of the river's more fertile and the sheep are much stronger now, you know, because they love the birds.
2: Why do bighorn sheep benefit from the
3: fires? The grass, like they really like the grass that comes post fire, especially the spring grass that comes up. They just love it. And it's super healthy for them. It's got high protein. There's a large amount of it. So when they're lambing, they get uh, this really nice upsurge of protein. And oh my gosh, the wildflowers last year were just crazy, like never seen. Flowers I haven't seen at those altitudes. And well, the Cameron Peak Fire is what they call a mosaic fire. And what that means is it doesn't burn completely through. It burns like, like a mosaic. What you have is you have Total burn, partial burn, and just a canopy burn. And what that does, it makes the plant life propagate quickly and healthfully. Where the uh, ponderosas have burned, you're seeing meadows that are being repopulated. You get this pretty cool upswing that's happened.
2: As you're experiencing some of the restoration efforts around you, do you see the river returning to a new baseline? It won't ever be the same,
3: but is it still lovable? more lovable you know it's like me an old man beat the shit out of me and you know kind of broken and bent and i make weird noises when i walk but i'm more lovable than i was 10 years ago and the river's the same way it makes all kinds of weird noises and fire seem you know they're both destructive and constructive at the same time you know it's no matter how flat you smash a pancake it has two sides it will come back this is what it's supposed to do it's not supposed to burn this way there's so many you know Fire mitigation and not letting fires burn—you know there's all kinds of politics around that, none of which I understand. But what I do know is if we can get out of the way of nature, it'll take care of itself. We just have to be a little patient. Which, when it first burned, I had nothing for patience. I'm like, my fish are dead, the river's black, and there's never going to be trees up in the canyon again. I've never—my kids aren't going to be able to see that again. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, look at this! This is so cool to see. It's so refreshing, you know. It's just. You know, if I can get out of the way and get over myself, that there's a there's a bigger picture that I'm just a little teeny part of.
2: This almost feels like life lessons in how to love a changing environment. Like if you're able to sit through the roller coaster of change in a place.
3: This is a lesson in what our relationship ought to be with the um, natural world and who we are in that Really, the, the fire and the floods have really changed me around how I see myself and how I see time and how I see nature and how I practice patience and humility.
2: A coalition-sized thank you goes out to Brian Maddox, Camille Stevens-Ruman and Ali Ray from CFRI, James Calabasa from Trees Water and People, and Megan Mayola Heath, and at the time of the recording, Shayna Jones from CPRW. This episode is special in that it was produced in collaboration with an advising team. Special thanks goes out to David Lasky and Rob Addington for their expansive knowledge of both fires and community members doing groundbreaking work. And special shout out goes out to Kara Darwin from Rim to Rim Restoration and Daniel A. from the US Forest Service, our content specialists in Moab, Utah. As always, you can find further resources in our show notes. I'm Samara Rosen. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius podcast.
0: Samara Rosen is our contributing host today. You can find links in our show notes directly to all guests and organizations and to other relevant content for this story. Today's sponsors are Wholesome and the Denver area Nissan dealers. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS to gain 20% off with Wholesome. There are links for Nissan and Wholesome in the show notes. All River Radius social media is arranged by Samantha Sice. Our music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com thanks so much for joining the river radius
5: fire can be used for good
4: think about like a quilt a patchwork of severities
7: a lot of the natural resource managers in the pooter watershed have been working together for 10 plus years on some of these issues so we're kind of trauma bonded in that way
1: fire changes how a watershed receives and routes water and makes it more susceptible to flooding and debris flows.
6: And then we got very stuck in the mud.
3: (laughs) Everyone's like, oh, bears. Oh, lions. Oh, wolves. We're scared of those. I'm not scared of any of those, man. I'm scared of moose.